Just a few hundred yards away from Stalin's hideout in the Schönbrunner Schlossstrasse loomed Schloss Schönbrunn, the vast Habsburg summer palace whose seclusion the Emperor Franz Josef had begun to favor even in winter, now that he was eighty-three. Here a meeting took place the week of Stalin's arrival that also fit the carnival season. It was a sort of masquerade. But it was a masquerade that had gone on for years. The very opposite of merry make-believe. It involved the bitter summit level of political reality. Its protagonist sat in a motor-car as huge as it was hurried, which barely slowed for the opening of the palace gates. Abruptly it crunched to a halt. Peremptorily, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, crown prince of the realm, debarked. He scowled past the salutes of guards. To the clinking of the sabers of his entourage, to the blunt drumming of boots against parquet, he marched toward the emperor's study. His eyes were pale blue and glared. His black mustache was the fiercest south of Kaiser Wilhelm. His bruiser's shoulders— his wrestler's chest swelled the uniform of a general of the imperial and royal army. When he met Franz Josef, the archduke's face glowered forward and swooped down as if to bite his sovereign's hand. Of course he only kissed it, but he kissed it unsmiling. Then he stood at grim attention, waiting for the emperor's invitation to sit. It came. He sat. Instantly, he hammered away at the Serbian question. A prickly matter, for Serbia, the feisty little kingdom, had become a thorn in the empire's southeastern flank. Serbia was challenging Austria's predominance east of the Adriatic. Serbia subverted fellow Slavs in the adjacent Habsburg province of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Serb-inspired radicals there smeared walls with slogans, threw stink bombs, plotted the assassination of Austrian governors. Most disturbing, only last year Serbia had destabilized the whole area in the Balkan War of 1912. With Bulgaria and Greece, it had fought Turkey for the Sultan's European possessions. After victory, Serbia claimed much of Albania, hitherto under Ottoman rule but presently a strategic prize the Serbs could use against Habsburg. No wonder Serbia vexed Vienna even during Mardi Gras. Between toasts and tangos, the question kept coming up, how severely must Serbia be disciplined, or should it be utterly destroyed? Serbia, then, was the inevitable subject of the all-highest meeting at Schloss Schönbrunn. All-highest was Habsburg parlance for the emperor. The crown prince fulminated, but all the trappings of a fierceling, the booming basso, the vehement gestures, the trembling of medals on his chest were deceptive. They disguised a fact to which very few were privy. The crown prince was a dove. A dove all the more ferocious because there was hardly any other in the empire's highest council. He utterly condemned, he said now, the thought behind the chief of staff's memorandum to the emperor, the one dated January 20th a copy of which had just reached his chancellery. He loathed the lunacy of a preventive war against the Serbs. He detested all those trigger-happy fools who didn't realize that such rashness must provoke Russia as Serbia's great Slav protector. 
he couldn't emphasize too strongly to His Majesty that war between Russia and Austria would be a catastrophe for Habsburg and Romanov alike. Therefore, in view of recent tensions, he must urge His Majesty to send a special emissary to St. Petersburg with a personal note for the Tsar stating Austria's peaceful intentions. Furthermore, His Majesty listened. Franz Josef had been on the throne for sixty-five years, but he still sat ramrod straight. His white sideburns, long become emblems of his empire, were just slightly turned away from all those furthermores. Not that he necessarily disagreed with them, but the man who thumped them out was so disagreeable. Franz Josef followed the dictum of his forebear, Franz I. A just ruler distributes discontent evenly and this spouting nephew of his would never achieve any kind of evenness. Franz Ferdinand had a bully's temperament, and Franz Josef did not like being subjected to it for one second longer than protocol demanded. He rose. So did his nephew. With his low, supreme voice, the emperor said, I'll have it thought about. Silence. Franz Ferdinand's moustache quivered as the archduke swooped down for the hand-kiss. His heels thundered away down the parquet. Behind him, the sabers of his retinue clinked. To fight frostbite, the guards outside presented arms with extra energy. The liveried chauffeur cranked the motor of the mountainous Graf und Stift. The automobile roared through the palace gates, and his imperial and royal highness, the heir apparent, was gone. Most Viennese who saw the swerve of that automobile guessed who was riding in it. The darkness of the man's mood expressed itself in the brute speed of his driver. Onlookers shook their heads. The older ones remembered the crown prince before this one, the Archduke Rudolf. He too had been notorious for his rush, though his vehicle had been the two-horse fiacre. And where had these horses gotten him too fast? To the hunting lodge in Myerling, where he had put a bullet through his temple. Now there was this new-fangled motor-born prince with his booming golden-spiked chariot. What impatience, what sullenness powered his thrust? Toward what end? Was he receding?